Trisha, you've just finished Shooting the Wife Before Christmas, which was shot, film shot in Scotland and Sweden with Glenn Close and Christian Slater. And we are going to talk about that a little bit later on. But we're going to start by going right back to the beginning. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> in the galaxy. Oh, no, sorry. Wrong one. Um, just, so the first question really is just, how did you end up, how did you end up doing this? It was sort of by chance, and I don't know if, it's, if it would be possible for it to happen now. Um, when I finished school, I didn't know what I wanted to do, and a family friend who used to work at BBC said, oh, I saw an ad on the stage. They need someone to go and sew at the Lawfrey Theatre. Um, <laughs> and so I thought, oh, she said, well, you've made some mini skirts or maxi skirts. You can probably, you know, you can sew a bit. That'll be fine. Just write to them. And I wrote to them on a Monday, and they phoned me on the Wednesday, and I started the following Monday. And they were obviously desperate. And <laughs> <laughs> so I spent a uh, summer up there, um, and there was only two of us making, and we worked in a port cabin, and there was a cutter, and we made costumes for six shows. We had a sort of a, a, an advertising slogan was stay six days and see six plays. Um, so through the sort of season, we made six costumes for six plays. And I discovered, having only made a couple of skirts, and I hadn't done any other sewing before I went up there, that I was actually quite good at sewing. And, you know, I had such a good time there too. It was a really sociable job. Um, were lots of parties and things. So I thought, well, this is something I might like to do. Um, and I had lots of lucky sort of things happening. When I finished that job, I had never, I mean, it hadn't occurred to me to work in costume. It hadn't been a, a lifelong aim or... I didn't, I didn't even think there was such a thing as a costume designer's job or people making costumes. It didn't occur to me, albeit I had been, been to the theatre and the opera and the ballet, it wasn't anything that hadn't occurred for some reason. So this was just a sort of a by chance thing. And uh, my mum had a health food shop store and a customer of hers was chatting, saying where had I gone because I'd worked there on Saturdays when I was at school. So I knew this guy because he was in and out all the time. And... It turned out he was a production manager at The Citizens, so when he heard I was finishing up in Pitlochry, he said, well, tell us to get in touch, we need people to make the pantomime at The Citizens. So I then went to The Citizens and worked there over the pantomime, and they asked me to stay on and do um, a great big Jacobean play called The Duchess of Malfi. So I was just making costumes. There was a cutter there called Crin and a few other people making and at the end of doing the Duchess of Malfi, Crin said to me, I think you should apply to go to Wimbledon um, Art School. They do a course in costumes. Now, at that time, it wasn't a degree course. It was a vocational course. It was a two-year course, and it was purely making and cutting and all aspects of creating costumes and, you know, what you could do with them. Um, so I went down to meet them, and I got accepted on the course, and luckily at that time, that was a time we still got grants, so... But it was the only place in Britain really doing a course in costume. Um, and the only other option there was to do a course in theatre design, which was primarily for sets, but with a little bit of costume. But I, at this point, was really more interested in all the sort of costume side of things. There was only seven of us doing the course. It was a very small, only small numbers. And it had been going for a few years, but they really... When Crin, who I'd been working with, had been there, there was only five of them. So it was sort of quite, there was a sort of a, a luxury to it in that you got very individual tuition. Um, and most of the tutors, barring one, I think, 
all came in only for one day and they were all working in the business apart from that. And there was one sort of head of department who sort of oversaw the course. So at the end of the first year, I'd already worked in theatre for about a year at that point. I was asked if I wanted to go to the Lyceum in Edinburgh to be a cutter. And I sort of thought, well, I won't I? So I just took the chance and I went to Edinburgh. And it was sort of like a trial by fire, because it was my first job as a cutter. And they were making the pantomime for the King's Theatre in Edinburgh. It was enormous, absolutely enormous. And we were also then making for the Lyceum Theatre. And we ended up, there was 40 sewing teachers brought in to help make the costumes. And I used to stop them leaving at tea time. I say, you can't go yet. Um, so we, that got done. And I then ended up, after that, going back to the citizens. Um, it wasn't that I didn't like Edinburgh. It was just I didn't particularly like the, 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 the way that, that it wasn't that the people I worked with were great, but it was the, the Edinburgh District Council owned the Lyceum and we were sort of locked into doing everything also for the King's Theatre and it made it a sort of a, a strange job you could be doing things that I wasn't particularly interested in doing, you know, like entertainment stuff and, and things like that. And so you went back to the Citizens' oh. Theatre. And I mean, you're going to tell us about this, but actually when you were there was the kind of this height of the Citizens. I don't know if any of you know the Citizens' Theatre, but it was the height of their sort of artistic and creative glory, really. So can you...? Well, it was. It was a fantastic time to work at the <coughs> Citizens. They had a, an ongoing repertory company. Um, it was run by three people, uh, Giles Havergill, Philip Price, and Robert David MacDonald. Giles was a director and sort of the money man. Philip Rouse, I would say, is one of the best designers I've ever known. And I would say everything I know, I got from him, really. Um, if you ever get a chance to see the Citizens Theatre, they did yearbooks at the time, but over a period of about 15 years. They put one out every five years. And it shows you the, the breadth and the scope of things that were being done in theatre at that time, you know, which isn't funded any longer, apart from you know the RSC or the National. There's very little funding for that type of theatre. Uh, most of the work was historical, so we did lots of Jacobean and Elizabethan, and there was very little contemporary things. It was a three-week rehearsal period and one week, um, then production week, so there was always a very quick turnaround. So it became a habit, or we had to create things very quickly. Um, so it was good for knowing that things had to get pushed through, and we made a massive amount of costumes. A small team, there was myself, another cutter, and three people sewing normally, and we would turn out a whole Oscar Wilde and make all the clothes, all the ladies' dresses, and if it was Jacobean or Elizabethan, we'd make men and women, so we were doing a huge amount of making. Um, I must say we did work late a lot, but it was still it was great fun. And we were doing really interesting plays. And it was a time when lots of actors who are quite well known now were starting, and a lot of those actors passed through the sits, like Gary Oldman, Pierce Brosnan, Rupert Everett. Rupert Everett. <laughs> um, you know, there was loads of them, you know, if I thought about names that you would think of and think, well, they came from the sits. Rupert Everett got his equity card. You needed to have your union card in those days to work on stage and he got his equity card there. So there was lots of talent coming through. So there were good actors doing really good plays and we were making really interesting costumes. Now, Philip, he never ever drew anything. 
So everything was done verbally. I mean, occasionally he would do a little drawing in the back of a cigarette packet, because he would be smoked then. Um, but normally it was just a verbal thing. So it was very much, uh, oh, you know, it's Elizabethan, it's big skirts, darling, and things like that. So there was a lot of, um, not leeway, because he was always the designer, but there was a lot of uh, freedom uh, in a way too, for sort of building shapes and, and one of his sort of thoughts really was it was silhouette that was the most important. So no matter, you know, if you did a lot of research in a period and you looked at the detailing and the trimmings and how things were decorated, in a way you could take all of that away and have the silhouette and then play around with that, with the decoration. So you didn't ever need to be thinking of replicating historical costumes. I should have brought the citizens' books along. You could have had a look at them afterwards because they're really exciting to see what was created in a short time in lots of different ways um, by just a small number of people, but with somebody like Philip's imagination. Uh, he also did sets too, so it was his whole, his whole image. I would say a lot of what I've learned, I learned from him. And he also taught, he taught Sandy Powell and he taught a variety of other people. So, you know, so he was involved in, uh, at different part times, involved in teaching, not so much when we were working at the Citizens. So I stayed at the Citizens for about 10 years. And presumably worked, you obviously you started Well, I started with a cutter, but very quickly, I think somebody once said, a costume designer was once said that you had to have a certain bossiness to be in charge. And uh, there was a Colin McNeil, um, who became a great friend. He was there as the um, supervisor, but very quickly we decided that we both supervise. Um, he was fine with that. So. <laughs> <laughs> and then he left. He went to work in Edinburgh eventually, and I stayed and you know ran the costume department on the making side. And still, it didn't really occur to me at that point to think of designing. I must have been slow or something, but it didn't. You know, it wasn't anything. I was thinking, well, I'll stay at the sits now, and then I, I want to design. I wasn't thinking that. I was really enjoying the making. You know, and it was always something I was good at. In a way, I found that's been a very helpful thing, having moved into design, because I can explain how I think something should be created. If we're sort of talking about seams, cutting doesn't worry me. You know, I, I understand <coughs> that, and I understand what happens to fabric. Now, there's two sort of schools of thought about... Some people say it's much better for a costume designer to know nothing about making, because then you're not inhibited by the fact that you know how difficult it is to do something. You know, it's easier if you know nothing. I'm, I come from the other side where I think it's very good to know as much as possible about the process of making costumes and what you can do. Then also nobody can say to you, oh, that's not all that, you can't do that. Because you sort of think, well, yes, you can. Um, so that, in that respect, I'm very pleased I came from a making background too. And I have to say, I th we'll see it later, but I think that really shows in the design that actually you know what you can do and that comes out in the design, particularly for things like Star Wars yeah. and such like. So how did you make that move into film? Another sort of lucky thing that happened. Uh, so I was still at the Citizens and a friend who used to be the administrator at 784, which was a theatre company in Edinburgh at the time, he had given that job up and had gone to London and was working as an assistant agent. Now, he was working at that time for Sandy Powell's agent, 
and she was coming up to Orkney to do a film set in the 40s called Leaders Peter. So John said to me, Sandy's coming up to look for some costumes at Saratoga Trunk. Why don't you meet her? Because she needs a supervisor. So she came and, and John and Sandy stayed at my house and we got on really well. So I then asked the sits if I could take a sabbatical and went to do Venus Peter up in Orkney um, as a supervisor. And again, it was good fun. And, you know, I thought, well, this is very nice. I like this. And I had been at the sits a long time and I knew I didn't want to be there forever. Uh, but it, I knew I also didn't want to just go and work in another theatre because I wouldn't have found a theatre doing as many interesting things as they were doing at the six at that point. So I promised Philip I'd come back to do his show after uh, working in Orkney. And I did come back to do that. And then Sandy said to me, do you want to come and do another film in London? Uh, so I then left the sits and went and supervised another film for her in London. And then David Heyman, an actor who I knew from The Citizens, was directing his first film and he asked me if I would design it and I said to him, design? Oh no, no, you know, and he and the production manager, uh, Willie Wands, they persuaded me to design Silent Scream. So that was it. Uh, that's how it sort of started. So lots of luck, you know, it's... It, but it's luck of being in the right place at the right time, so it's not yes, just, no, no. It's not as random as no, that it at is, all, actually. It is still, somebody makes a suggestion and it works out. Yeah. And that, you know, that happens all the time, I think, you know, hopefully you'll all have lots of luck. Mall Flanders, that was the first episodic television thing that I did, um, which is quite different from working in film, and it's quite different from doing a single drama too. I mean, you know, working on River City, that it's, they do... I think two episodes a week and that's very very quick and you have two teams running all the time on this this was episodic but it was at a slightly slower pace I mean normally you know you can look at two and a half weeks probably per episode for a drama so that was my first experience that went around the country and was quite um, you know everything's a learning process you sort of learn and you sort of things that uh, you start off, you know, sort of saying, oh my goodness, I don't think I can do this. And then once you've done one, you sort of think, oh, that wasn't so bad, maybe I can do another one. And obviously there were other things. And then we came to the thing that you are best known for, which is Star Wars. So there's quite a lot of vintage pieces used, um, a lot of which at the time came from Glasgow. I had boxes of, uh, from Saratoga Trunk, which had some marvellous... Well, that's, that, that's the sort of headdresses, so that's really just front and back views of, of one of the Queen's headdresses. The inspiration came from lots of different places. The top picture is sort of Tibetan and Mongolian. This one in the bottom corner here, the sort of inspiration for that came from African, uh, an African headdress I saw uh, some pictures of. Um, and the one in the other corner is sort of a, sort of a take on a Russian uh, peasant sort of... Um, in fact, it was a, initially I saw a photograph of one of the Tsarinas at a fancy dress party and had, she had on sort of headdress and sort of similar to that. So um, the sort of theme of sort of Russian peasant um, thing. So it was just it, the sort of inspiration for all these things and the costumes sort of came, you know, from everywhere, really. So these are just, um, that's um, one of the sort of very well-known images of uh, Natalie as Padme. And again, there's aspects of Glasgow in there, all the beading at the front. Uh, this is sort of a senator spread, and these are sort of a list, uh, uh, just a, a, a picture of 
uh, a variety of centres. Now, obviously, some of these are more quickly made than the principal costumes. These are all background, and we had to fill sort of various numbers. You know, so we had to there had to be a sort of speed of creating things because we're going to be seen, you know, in, from a distance, and we didn't take as much time. And I tended to maybe um, use more texture to get interest rather than uh, the sort of a lot of overly detail. Uh, now this is a Jedi, just a, a spreadsheet of Jedi's. Now every Jedi costume is different and there was just a, a variety uh, on a theme and we tried to base some of the items, some of the costumes on which planet people were meant to have come from. So if we did see some of their planet we would try incorporate some details from there so there was always sort of a, a link back so he uh, Ewan started in a very light coloured costume and as the film progressed he moved into the colours more for episode four um to link through to you know link the, the the two lots of um trilogies together so that people who were in both there was a sort of a costume link through to darken them all now the sort of idea in a way for his cloak came from a picture I came across, it's not exactly obviously the same, uh, the pleated, the sunray pleating of a Tibetan monk. I don't think his cloak was sunray pleated, but I just saw it looked as if, and I thought it would be a nice image to have, you know, when he's fighting, that there would be a lot of movement in the cloak and, you know, that it could sort of spread out and become much more like a, a cutting edge. And uh, this was Django Fett, his son, becomes Boba Fett and we linked the two costumes together so it was uh, uh, all of this we had um, an armour making department both in London and when we were doing the, uh, the other episodes in Australia so everything was made we made everything in situ so these are again uh, the costume prop department did a lot of this so the helmet and the, the weapons and the skirt um, which was sort of based on an idea of the samurai uh, warriors they are sort of leather sort of panelled armour and metal panelled armour that are linked together. This is Kira Knightley who was one of the handmaidens which I don't think is that commonly known and that's Wookiees obviously and they again have to be linked through to no. <laughs> creatures made their bodies and we did all the um, the leather work and the, the you know decorative pieces. These are just sort of military um, looks for various characters. Um, and that's two different queens but linking their culture and that's another queen now this is a, a costume that this was in episode two and this which we might talk about a little bit later is the difference between film and digital now um, episode two was one of the first films we shot digitally and we had lots of conversations beforehand with ILM industrial light magic about and the, the sort of the camera people about the difference to <coughs> textiles what what was going to happen and at that point they thought there was going to be a problem between greens and blues the green and blue spectrum might not be clear but they were very very confident that blacks and whites would be incredible with all the detail in black that you never got in film and also in white and it wouldn't be that would have a problem not being able to use a white because it would be too blaring uh, so that was fine and we'd camera tested all sorts of fabrics. We did, this is a dress that's made from a, a vintage golden coloured moiré fabric silk um, with a velvet over the top and that had been discharge printed 
and there was only a small amount of decoration around the neck and we um, Natalie put it on and went to a camera test the day before we were going to film on it and the whole this area here just spoiled. Now that was what would have happened if we'd been shooting in video but nobody had thought that there was going to be fabrics that you couldn't use when you were filming digitally, you know, when things have been, when it's digital. So what did you do? So we covered <laughs> the whole of the neck. It really, luckily, it wasn't the skirt, and a lot of the shot was from here up. So we covered the neck in um, vintage beads, and that sort of solved the problem enough that we could use, use the costume the next morning. So that, then that was a lesson. <laughs> now this um, is, a, again, a very common uh, <coughs> picture of... Um, the dress, but you know, and everybody always thinks Star Wars is very high tech. But the, these uh, bulbs at the bottom lit up, and it was done by with a car battery. So literally, there's a cable running from under a dress to behind a pillar, and then there's an electrician there who's turning it off and turning it on because it couldn't be on the whole time because the dress was going to overheat and maybe swim melt on the inside. So, you know, with all the sort of high tech things, you also have to have the low tech. So that was a, um, just one of our dresses. Thing about that dress, in a way, you know, just it had to be completely made, completely finished, and then completely taken apart to do the ombre dyeing, to make sure all the levels of the colours on both layers were going to match up absolutely. So that it wasn't we couldn't sort of lift one layer at the shoulder. You know, we couldn't do a final fitting after it had been dyed. So that you know looks like a very simple dress, but actually took a lot of time to make because of having to completely finish it before before somebody could take it away and do the, the, the level of dyeing on it. Uh, now this is the wedding dress which was seen very briefly and we were filming this in, a, uh, this is Italy, but it was meant to be Italy. We were filming in Australia this scene and we were waiting for fabric and waiting for fabric. It didn't come and eventually uh, I found a vintage bedspread that had come from Italy and probably about 100 years ago being brought obviously to Australia with it by an immigrant and so it sort of very it much limited the design of the dress because it was a it was a double bedspread but a small double bed and you know that sort of dictated how big the dress could be I mean we did cut into it and I had found in Australia a fantastic embroiderer, machine embroidery, but she had all sorts of vintage embroidery machines, so she could do things that people had been doing on sort of very small, that immigrants again had bought, brought to Australia, and she bought them up as they became available. So apart from having a big digital embroidery bed, she could do trapunto and all sorts of things. So she did panels for me that weren't as ornate, and we put those panels in, but the dress is quite slim fitting, because of the limitations of the fabric. The headdress, lace, and the sort of little Edwardian wax flower thing came from Glasgow uh, again. So it wasn't intentional, it was just there weren't, there weren't a huge numbers of vintage things in Australia when we were there. And I just had taken, I had a very good relationship with the, uh, Kathy McClay, who was the owner of Saratoga at the trunk uh, at, trunk at the time time and she just allowed me to take boxes and boxes of things to use and then send her back what I didn't use so it was a sort of a fantastic thing to have that sort of choice that you, know, you didn't have to make the choice before you got to Australia you could make the choice while you were there so it was quite unusual so that's just another of Natalie's costumes this was um, not seen very much in the film but it was one I particularly liked because 
the uh, it's devoried velvet silk velvet and the little brooch is a vintage brooch and I used that as a sort of inspiration for the devoree pattern um, for, for that and again that was something that we made and then it was devoried because it had to all sit in the right place now that's the lorium that's just really the colours are nice and that but that was a, a, a fine that's a wookie badge um, which you know we made lots of those and that's just you know, we used to, George uh, Lucas is very interested in absolutely everything, uh, you know, to do the costume, to do the sets. He sees everything. So, you know, sometimes we would do colour samples. I'd get Ivo, who did the costume props, to do a range of colour samples so that we could send those, um, like if George was in America, we'd send halves so that we had the matching halves when we did a video link conference call and talk through, you know, what colours we would use for for characters. Uh, now this, I did a lot of um, going around art schools um, for costumes on episode one because in France there's Premier Vision, which is a big trade show for fabrics. And beside that, they have a, a, a small section for graduating textile students. Uh, and that was a place to find really interesting textiles that weren't available in the shops. So I sort of, made a few contacts when I was in Paris and then went and visited all the textile departments like at Loughborough, Glasgow, you know, all over really, and then got some students to come to Leaveston to make a length of their fabric or, you know, to do it. This one was a latex fabric uh, and that was latex with little beach pebbles stuck in it, <laughs> so it's quite stretchy. And uh, the problem with that we found, we went to Tunisia to film this. This was for the pod race, and it was very 50 degrees in the Sahara Desert. And as the, the poor guy who was in the suit started to warm up, and his suit started to warm up, which was sort of latex underneath, the creatures made that. Then the stone started to pop out of the latex costume and fly all over. You know, we were having to constantly stick bits back on him. You know, so that was something that was sort of unexpected. I mean, it was funny after the event. It wasn't so funny, you know, as they were all being sort of popped out by stones. Uh, that's Hayden before he becomes this person. <laughs> now, we had to um, remake uh, Darth Vader to fit Hayden. There was the original Darth Vader, which came from the ranch. And again, it's the whole sort of digital thing and computers. Now, the original um, Darth Vader costume had been hand-sculpted so normally what they do, you know, one person will sculpt it in clay and almost always you never get rights unless are identical. But with doing things on computer, you can just, you just do half of it and then you flip it. So you get absolutely. Now some Star Wars fans didn't like the new Darth Vader because it didn't, it lacked the slight quirkiness or the original Darth Vader. Episode two was the first time that we also used 3D printers. Um, so things were designed on computer, costume props and jewellery mainly, but we then had a small 3D printer and we printed off various headdresses, some of them, and jewellery and other various pieces for costumes, which it, we printed them in wax and then made moulds of them. So it hadn't got as far as it has now where you can print them out in polymer and you then can use it as a finished article as I did in Emerald City. So I've got some of the 
headdresses, there's a few of them that were 3D printed, but in the material that you see them in, um, whereas we were only making uh, wax moulds for this. Just um, a few questions about working on Star Wars, working with George Lucas, um, and I suppose the first question is how you got the job, actually, because that's, well, it's quite a surprise to get the job. Um, I'd, uh, I'd worked on uh, the Young Indiana Jones television series. I'd done three two-hour films with Lucasfilm, but I'd never met George Lucas. Um, I'd worked with Rick McCallum, who was a producer on those, and also the producer on Star Wars. And <clears throat> I remember one day I was working on a BBC Scotland drama, uh, I can't even remember where we were. We weren't in Scotland, we were somewhere in England. And it, well, it was a, a small drama. And I got a phone call from Rick saying, come to London and talk to me about Star Wars. You know, and I thought, uh, so I went and he said, do you want to do it? And I, I thought, I don't know if he's offering me the job or asking me if I'd like to do it. If, you know, if, uh. So anyway, he was offering me the job. And I went to meet uh, George Lucas and... He has, a, I think, a great loyalty to people he's worked with because he used all the heads of departments from the Young Indiana Jones TV series. We were all taken onto Star Wars. So the, the DOP, the production designer, myself, and a few other people, you know, so it was a sort of a out-of-the-blue thing. I remember it going back, having been offered the job and sitting down beside Irene Napier, who's a makeup artist, and we were sitting on, you know, cheeky canvas stools watching a man dressed as a postman walk along the seafront. And I said, I mean, I've just been off at Star Wars. <laughs> you know, it was sort of so unbelievable. It really, you know, wasn't anything that, you know, I would have ever dreamt would have happened. So it was a fantastic time. It was, a, you know, a really interesting thing to do. George, as I said earlier, is and was completely involved in absolutely everything. Where he is in America, or, you know, when he was still Lucasfilm, the Skywalker Ranch, where they had a huge art department and, uh, you know, every facility there that you could, you know, use. And George would come in once a week and look at ideas and talk about ideas and, you know, things like that. There was a, a large number there. When I first went there, which would have been in 96, uh, there was a, a concept art department and they had been working doing, you know, worlds and creatures and, you know, everything that goes in to make a culture for all sorts of different planets. Uh, so that was, like, incredible, you know, because they, all sorts of things that then, you know, were created mostly digitally, uh, or all digitally, really. Um, and I went to ILM, to Industrial Light and Magic, who were part of the Lucasfilm um, group and they were just finishing doing uh, they had a large you know like from here to where you are at the back a street scene of, uh, of Men in Black with the tower at the end you know but it was, it was this size all the way along and you know they said oh this is Men in Black it's, we've just finished doing it and then when you saw it at the cinema you thought oh my god this is... uh, and also they were involved very much in we made Jar Jar Binks, for instance, you know, everybody hates that character, but uh, the actor, there was an actor who played that character, and he was in costume the whole time, and then ILM took the actor's movements and then turned him into a digital character, but he was on set the whole time, fully costumed, with his head on, and the actors acted, you know, with that character, 
and he was sort of a performance act, artist and actor, so he had great body movement. So all the movements that that character has are based on um, the actor who sort of played that part, which was quite interesting because later on, um, or for other characters not being such an important part, they were digitalised, you know, like there would be an actor saying the lines, but they weren't in full costume in the same way. ILM developed also what they could do to make textiles look real, which was always was certainly a problem in, on episode one. But by the time we got to episode three, they could create everything that they couldn't do on episode one. They could do fur, which is a very hard thing to do digitally. Um, and uh, I used some sort of um, African fringe, um, they're actually hats, on a character and Initially, when they looked at it at the beginning, they said, oh, he was going to be a digital, uh, digital character. But then by the time it came to the end of filming, they said, we've got it, we've done it, you know, we can do that. So it was a, a very interesting process to see the development of, of textiles uh, and to see the limitation too, because still, I don't think, I don't think I've, as far as I'm aware, I don't think I have yet seen a digital fabric that looks completely real like digital people they don't they're just something not quite but it's close and I think you know I mean sometimes I'm sure maybe I've missed it and they have done it <laughs> this is less of a Star Wars question really but just generally how does the process work for you in terms of working meeting the director finding out what they're wanting you know the production designer how does that process work well on all jobs whether they're contemporary or period you know I would firstly read a script usually I mean and then you would meet the director and unless you've worked with the director first you're meeting the director to see if you've got the job basically you know to see if you know they're going to meet a few people and then depending you know you go along and you talk about their ideas your ideas you see whether you think together you would it would be it would work sometimes you might not hear whether you've got a job for a few days other times you meet somebody, it's not so often that happens, you meet a director and they offer you the job on the spot. Now that happened with Emerald City. I met Tarsum and we just got really well and he, I think, particularly liked my CV because I have done a range of things. He didn't want somebody who just worked in film. He just, he does a lot of commercials. He wanted somebody who had a television background too because of the difference in speed of, you know, filming for film, you know, you Film is much slower normally than television. Television slower than commercials, and you know it's that sort of thing. Of he wanted somebody who could do episodic television because it is a, something that some people don't like to do. They find it too stressful. I think maybe because it it can be relentless. So you meet the director, you talk about initial ideas. Then I would do some research normally about if it was period. You would look at some research. You would then want to have further conversations with the director and the production designer at that point, so you could be talking colour. I mean, these are things I'm sure you all know because you will have talked about all of these things in college, no matter what course you're doing, sort of process yeah. in a way of getting to the point that you then start to make things. So you design things, but you, you know, there is always, or often there is negotiation about costumes because apart from the designer, and the director, you then have the actor. And the actor often has ideas too. Uh, some actors more so than others. Some actors are 
happy as long as they feel they look right or they feel they look good. And other people have very clear pictures of how they see their character. Now that sometimes is not the same picture maybe that the director has or that I have. And that's when you have to hope you can persuade people a little or get them to sort of cut, you know, because really you're looking for an overall look for a project. You don't want somebody wearing something very different that's going to jar with the sort of cohesive sort of picture that you have of it or the director has of it. Um, so yes, so persuasion sometimes comes into it. And then also sometimes compromise. Often you're asked to design costumes, or often I've been asked to design costumes before a character's cast. Now that's a really, I find that a really hard thing to do because you can have an idea and you can let somebody see a drawing and they can say yes, yes, yes. And then you get the casting and you think, oh no, you know, it's not the right shape. Uh, the person's described in the script as being, you know, tall, willowy and blonde. And actually it turns out, you know, they're not that at all. They're completely opposite or whatever. You know, you just, the casting doesn't work for the idea and you have to be able uh, to adjust your ideas. Um, and obviously in a perfect world, everybody would be cast before you started to design, really. But that often is not the case, because often you can get casting the day before or two days before somebody's due to start filming. Presumably particularly in television. That's yes, particularly in television. Yeah. 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 That can be very difficult. Indeed. Your team, how important, as a kind of obvious well, question, really, how important is your team? The team is the most <laughs> important. I mean, and that I'm sure you also all know from college, you know, if you're working with people. But I mean, I've worked on jobs where the, a small team, like the wife was a small team. Um, I did have some things made, but we had them made out. And then I've worked on jobs where Emerald City had a big team. We did that in Budapest. Um, da Vinci's Demons had a good sized team. And at Star Wars, you know, it averaged probably, you know, if I looked at all three, between 80 and 120 people in the costume department on Star Wars. So that's a lot of people to liaise with and to talk to. But the team, I'm only as good as the team I have because I can have a great idea. And if I haven't got anyone to make that great idea, then it's, never, it's not going to be a great idea. It's not going to look how you want it to look. So the team is all important. And also because we work long hours often, it's really important to have the right mix of people. You don't need to like, you know, people don't need to like each other, but you have to respect each other, I think, and all be prepared to do your best. Um, but it is often, skills are hugely important because we use so many skills now to make costumes, if you have the time, the luxury of the time, and the luxury of having a budget. I mean, that's the other thing that can be and make it very difficult if you don't have a budget. But the team, for me, you know, is Key. The, the prime importance, really. Uh, I mean, there are times where I've thought about not taking jobs because there can be times where you know it's really busy and you know all the people you like working with are working on other things. And it's very worrying if you've got a whole team that is new uh, and you want to be making a lot of things. I mean, that's a, that's a really difficult thing because you build up, obviously, a shorthand with people and you you know people's strengths and you know what they can do and you know whether they can do it quickly or not so quickly so it's much easier to work with at least some people that you have worked with before and that sort of goes not just in the making 
because I mean, apart from the making team, there is obviously also the team of people who are on set, who are looking after the costumes, who are doing all the continuity. Uh, you have the crowd supervisor and the crowd fitters who they're on a big job, they're doing all of that too. Um, you're also using your assistant designer often to pull costumes for the crowd because, I mean, I might go and look at what's available in different hire companies. I mean, on Emerald City, we probably hired 500 crowd costumes for two different groups and we made about 500 crowd costumes. So for different groups. Unless you're on a job like Starboard, you don't normally get to make everything. There isn't the time, you know, or there isn't the budget. Um, so it's, it's, it's great when you make the crowd because you're getting exactly what you want. Um, but it's not often that you would get to make all the crowd. Um, so you're relying on, I'm relying on so many people to find what I'm looking for or to, you know, that we can source things or arrange how things made. It's, uh, we are a team. I mean, I think we're a team. I never think of that I do a job. I always think that we do a job, uh, the people I'm working with. And that's usually why I talk about we rather than I, because I, I know that I certainly couldn't do it. I couldn't do it my own. Good. I'm aware of time, so I'm... All right. Gosh, I, I have been talking. I didn't think I'd talk so much. <laughs> um, but we're going to look at some um, pictures from Da Vinci's Demons. Then we can have questions. Yeah. I mean, these are the principal characters. Um, so these are, are actually... Uh, this was an American company, um, and they spent the money making some nice pictures of some you know, publicity photographs. So this was their season two. So this is just one of the, the main characters. Da Vinci's Demons was set, meant to be set in Italy, you know, the end of the 16th century, but they didn't want it to look historical. You know, they wanted it to be historical, but to have a bit of a modern slant, you know, as so many things nowadays, it's, oh yes, let's be historical, but you know, can you make it sexier or can you, um, you know, they don't want big period costumes so you end up sort of loosely basing things on historical costumes but you, they want a little bit more modern, things that are more attractive to an audience that doesn't want to watch period drama. So it's not, I'm not thinking it's the end of the 16th century. So these are all just, uh, again, principal characters. And this was a, an Inca sort of scene uh, where Leonardo da Vinci, as I'm sure you won't know, went to South America <laughs> and had an adventure there for a couple of years. Uh, so these are the characters he met. So this uh, we had made, obviously made specially, and there's not a lot of reference for uh, what Incas were wearing, uh, but this was gold-plated to get, because we were filming it by firelight. We did have a, a, an expert who was advising us on various things, and to get the right sort of colour, of, uh, we did gold-plate his costume, which can be done relatively cheaply. Um, I know it, it sort of sounds as if it's very expensive, but you can do it uh, quite cheaply. And in fact, we gold-plated his boots ourselves. So you can get a little mini gold-plating machine, and his boots were made from little metal squares, so we just gold-plated them ourselves and saved some money. So that was uh, the priestess, and again, she was gold-plated. And as you can probably guess, took her clothes off at some point. Um, <laughs> And then we had the Turks, the Ottoman Empire. So this was just uh, based on some Ottoman 
clothing from around about the period. So these are just to show you a flavour of things that we made. Uh, these are the Ottomans. The chain mail we got from Spain. There's a hire company there that um, has stocks of things like chain mail and so forth. And then this actually came from the Borgias, which had finished, and we bought some of their stuff. And that's just some armour we made. And that's the Ottoman. Um, some pictures? Yes, I've got a, I've put a few photographs in again so you can see a little more detail of some of the costumes because they're quite quick here. So we had one character who had 12 masks. Every time we saw her, she, um, we, we don't ever see her face without a mask on. So I've, I've included some quick ones of, well, that's a sort of an overall picture of the main characters and just sort of their sort of general look. Um, that's this Lady Eve who has a different mask. Some of her masks show emotion. Some are just, um, you know, to show her position. She starts off as a princess and becomes a queen of a, a country. Uh, this was a mask for, meant to be going to a festival, so it's a bird mask. And then we have, in this scene, we have about 250 townspeople in masks that are much more primitive that we made and painted as well. Hers were much more um, elaborate. So that's just that, you know, with her dress, that was a, a sort of a waxwork top that we used a, a moulding foam and then Lindy, who was one of the cutters, had done a training at Edinburgh Wax Museum many years ago, so she then turned that into a waxwork, so, which was great. Uh, so this is again just a her with her, one of her masks, and again this was a, uh, one that was 3D printed, this mask, um, with an additional sort of, sort of jewel piece put on top. Um, this was a part of a hat. That, that for our military costume, so it was a military hat and the hat came off leaving the leather mask on her face because as I say she never is seen really without her mask on. So this was when she became queen so it's a much more elaborate and um, decorated mask. This is the witch that she killed Dorothy, so this is the witch of the east and her costume Tarsum wanted to, he's not really interested, he doesn't particularly like to do things digitally, he really is keen to do things as real as possible. So with this costume, we had to do lots of tests with wind machines, uh, with a stand-in before we made the dress, but using, you know, working out what length of um, silk was going to be needed and how much we could use with, you know, this size of wind machine or this size of wind machine. And there's some scenes in one of the episodes where she's on top of a tall building, it's completely, you know, streaming out behind her. Um, but that was sort of really trial and error. And this costume, assistant costume designer who was on set in Spain that day had to climb up a vertical ladder onto a tiny little platform and rearrange the this you know the red streamers um, after every day. This is Glinda who was always in white and silver and had a, an array of you know very decorated. She is uh, the Witch of the North and is powerful. Uh, and this is Witch of the West who runs a brothel now because there's no magic in so she has this is a dress I came across I don't know about you but I often are I find it can just be a vintage piece it can just be something that is sort of inspirational that you sort of think I really want to use that somewhere this is made from beetle wings and I found in London in a, a jewellery place that I go to three necklaces that were just beetle wing necklaces so I bought them sort of not knowing what I was going to do with them and then thought well it would be nice if I can make 
a dress for her, her waist, you know, because her costumes are quite revealing, but the colours were fantastic. So I was using a, a cutter in Paris who worked at Paris Opera, who took his holidays and came and worked with us. Just, he did two dresses, both beautiful. And he in Paris found the actual Beatles at a taxidermist. So once we had sort of started making the dress with the beetle wings and embroidery and beads, he turned up saying, look, I found six or seven of these poor beetles. Um, so she, she has actually got beetles sort of crawling over her. Um, I, was, I was telling Alison, normally with these sort of dresses, you keep them in bags, fabric bags, but we couldn't keep it in a bag because the beetles smelled. The wings were fine, but I think it was a taxidermy chemicals where it, you, know, you had to keep it in the fresh air all the time. And anyway, she was very game. She didn't, didn't complain. <laughs> so that's her again. So this, uh, these are the two, Jack and Tip. And Jack becomes the Tin Man, and Tip starts off as a boy and becomes a girl, and then becomes a boy again and then becomes a girl again. So she's her gender is changing all the time through magic. So that's her as a boy. She was very petite, Dorothy. And that's the Tin Man's heart, um, which unfortunately I couldn't bring. I've got a video of it. Uh, the company that made it in London, FBFX, who specialise in making armour and things like that, they made this. And overall, it probably took three months or so to make because they had to take a cast of his body and then mill that out so we had a full-size body cast of him and then they sculpted the whole thing on his body. And then we did fitting after fitting after fitting to get it right because it had to fit and look like a, a, a skin. And then they found a way to make the heart beat like a clockwork and to it beat at two different speeds. So I don't know if it made the final cut where as he sort of falls in love that we see his heart beating faster. Um, so anyway, I know it does that, it was nice. Uh, this is Lady Air again, another mask. This is another one that was um, printed. And this is armour, there's a whole series, about 150 of these we made and Tarson wanted it to resemble the sort of Gaudi chimneys which I think he's got a thing about, because afterwards when I looked at all his other films, I thought, I think that's next to a garbage chimney. So, again, the same company that made that, and they sculpted that, and all getting all the angles right, it took a long time. And Vincent D'Onofrio, he was an actor who had very sort of strong ideas about how he felt his character would look, uh, because he's sort of quite method, I think. So that was, a, you know, interesting to work with him. And he couldn't turn up. We were filming him in Spain, and he's in, in New York, and he's been working in another job. And I got someone to fit him in New York in contemporary things, because at one point we see him in contemporary things. But he turned up in Spain, and we had 48 hours to make six costumes for him to film on the first day, um, which was quite difficult. And we had a whole sort of team um, making in Spain, as well as a team making in, in Budapest. But these are the things that are often really hard to do, you know, when an actor can't, you know, he couldn't, sometimes they won't, you know, and, you know, they want you to go to them and you, you can't do it at the time. So, but he was, he was great and it all worked out, but um, uh, it was, I would say, six sort of costumes that were quite elaborate. We had to take a lot of people with us to Spain. So these are the Munchikins, which in the film are little people, um, but they're sort of more sort of warrior-like. And that's the scene where we have all the masks. And this is the lion, who's 
disguised, so you're not quite sure who he is. I mean, you do get to know that, but at this point, you don't know who he is. And these were instead of the ruby shoes, um, we did ruby gauntlets because the ruby shoes are copyright. You can't, you can't say ruby slippers, um, and you couldn't use them. So uh, we did have blood in Dorothy's shoes, but because of the fact that seam has been shot at night, you really then ended up not being able to see it. Um, I mean, these were always going to be in, and they are worn both by the Witch of the East and by Dorothy, and they do sort of materialise in her hand, so that's done in post, although she had that, that's a hard copy that we made for her to wear. Well, I'm going to ask you one question yes. before we open up, and that is, what do you look for? Yes, and then we a glass of wine. What do you look for in a tree? <laughs> Listen, King <Kim. laughs> Well, um, there's lots of things go into making a good trainee. Uh, enthusiasm, um, obviously skill, and I, I would say you've all got a good basis with the courses you've done. Enthusiasm, a really positive attitude, somebody who can look and anticipate things needing done, willing, good-humoured. Uh, turns up on time. Oh, turns up. Well, we, yes. you're all here yes, in town, you're all early. Yeah, I mean, and also the multi-skilled really because uh, we had she wasn't a trainee, she was past being a trainee on Emerald City but she it was multi-skilled you know, she could so and also being truthful about what you can do I mean that's a really important thing, you know, if I ask somebody can you sew to this level or can you do this to this level, it's so much better if you say actually I'm not that good at that I'll try it if you'd like but I, I, I'm okay. Uh, there's nothing worse than giving somebody something to do, and then it's very disheartening if you have to say, "Well, actually, you have to unpick that," or you have to, you know, that's not, you know, or even worse, it's spoiled. Um, so, I think being truthful about your skills is really important, but also realizing, I mean, things are quite casual now, but there still is a sort of a protocol of behaviour, and not being afraid to ask things. I think that's the other thing, not to ever, you know, I want a trainee who won't hesitate to say to me, I'm not understanding that, I'm not sure about that, can you tell me exactly what you want, you know, so that's, it's good to ask questions, but really it's, it's, it is an attitude thing, it's a willingness and an attitude that really carries a day often with trainees, people who think ahead and don't wait to be asked to do something. They sort of think, well, that was we needed to do that yesterday for that character, and we need to do that later today. And you say, well, I oh, well, do you want me to do that if if there's nothing, you know? So you're not just sort of thinking, I'll go and loiter around the corner um, until somebody comes to look for me. Although I'm sure sometimes you'd like <laughs> to do that. <laughs> but yes, I mean, because obviously when you're starting, you're still going to learn lots and lots if you want to, and you can pick up as much or as little information or or new skills on jobs as really as you want to. Right, okay. I think we'll... Questions? Open for questions. Who's got a question? You've all been writing furiously. So, yeah. Just uh, for, for the Jedi and the Sith costumes, do, would you have two separate ones, as in one for standing around and one for when they're skating about floating uh, bits having a fight with each other? Well, normally you'd have had probably about 10 versions for somebody like Ewan, you know, or Sam Jackson. So we would make 10 versions. So 
Some versions would be used for stunts. Some might be slightly lighter weight. For a costume like that, and then a film like that, you really wouldn't just one or two. No, I yeah. just if there was there, if there were specific differences that you would sort of change with. Uh, so. Yes, well, for stunt, if you get stunt men, you might need to blame proof things, or so you might want to use a different fabric, or do a slightly different cut. Some you might want to make, you know, like um, the red dress in Emerald City. We could have made more than one version of that, but we worked out we didn't need two. We had layers of her cloak, so sometimes we could give her all three layers, and then other times she just had two layers. So if we wanted. You know, a really big billow or yeah, a small billow. So yeah. 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 Given that you have to work out multiples and extras, have you ever turned down a job because you've read the script and you know it's not going to work on that budget, or? I have discussed budget with people, and usually, if you, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's a question you would always ask before you would take a job: is what's the budget now? You can make small budget things work as long as everybody's working from the same budget and you don't have a director who wants different things. And I have had conversations where I said, unless you can get more money, I'm afraid I can't do this job. By that point, you have to have done a budget and you have to be able to explain where that money's going. And sometimes people will change the script slightly, you know, because you can on paper say they crashed the car or whatever, and you can say, tens of thousands of pounds if you don't have to make every costume that's going to be burned, for instance. So it's compromising, I think, sometimes. And, you know, sometimes people will take on jobs and start jobs and then overrun in the budget. And for me, and I think it's something nobody should ever do because if you get a reputation for not keeping to your budget, you won't get another job. There, if you're, depending on the film that you're working on, there are completion guarantors who ensure films if they see a costume designer or a production designer who goes over the budget without agreement, then they will say if your name comes up for another job, you can't use them. So, you know, it's very important. Your reputation is important, so keeping within budget is very important. So, yes, saying no if you know you can't do that job. I mean, that can be hard, particularly, you know, if you're starting. But, yeah, it's very important to know you can do it for the money they've got. Yeah? Uh, for Star Wars, obviously all the pieces were like your own and you, but they still had to be recognisable within the universe of people in the Did you find that easier or like more restricting? I actually think mostly you are going to take reference from, you know, what we've all seen and, and no, I don't think it was more difficult. I think it was probably easier to be able to sort of, you weren't afraid of taking things quite recognisably in some ways from other cultures and using it. Um, yeah. It wasn't, you know... Emerald City it was a similar job in that there were, were no boundaries to what you could use for reference. You were, it wasn't set in a particular period or set in a time. It, you could pull reference from anywhere and then incorporate that into the designs of the costumes there. Um, so in your job you've changed from loads and loads of different films, obviously, because it's like short contracts. Mm -hmm. How do you deal with like not knowing what's coming next? <laughs> You learn, you sort of learn, it's not for everybody. And I mean, I came from a background where I'd worked for 10 years at the Citizens and they paid me all year. So I had come from, a, you know, always knowing that I had some money coming in and it was a consideration sort of, you know, taking that step into being freelance. And there are times where you think, you know, will anybody ever offer me another job? But, you know, as you work, 
you do tend to get more work but then sometimes I love you know having time off now but you know I think when you're younger and you don't maybe have the sort of contacts yet to it's frightening yeah it's frightening it's frightening if you get your rent to pay and yeah. and how do you move your family with you I don't that's that's impossible yeah we all we, we all take jobs away yeah. um, and you just have to work out how that works and you if it's a part you work with a partner or if it's children something it's, you just have and people do people do find ways of working and in fact I've worked in so many jobs where I don't know what, what people's family situations are because actually they it's can, not they yeah. deal with it at home yeah. but they do manage to to do it even though it seems but also I, I know people I, I'm sure you do Alison too who will choose to live and take jobs in Glasgow that they wouldn't necessarily want to do because they do have a family and they need to be there maybe because of a child, they might be single parents. Uh, so I think it's particularly difficult for women, you know, to, if they have children, to make it work. I mean, I've, I don't have any children and I've been able to go and work anywhere, you know, and I've worked in lots of different countries, but I know it's hard for people to manage, particularly if they have young children. Yeah. Beautiful question. Yeah. Um, I can't quite wrap my head around how you design for a crowd scene with like a hundred or more people do you have to like draw everything or no do you sort of no I mean no, not um you know it would depend as I said you often I mean the 500 crowd costumes we made for Emerald City tended to be for groups so we made say 150 sets of armor we made 50 black witches 75 white witches so many of this so many of that. um say on Star Wars where we made all the crowd we set up a theme you know, so like everybody in the booth, it was a there was a sort of a pre-Raphaelite feel to their clothing, and you could do as they do. I'm trying to think of where you would have say six designs, and you would vary it. You would do different fabrics. You would do you know a different neckline and long sleeves, short sleeves, because you don't have the time to necessarily do that. But a lot of crowd costumes you would maybe depending you would intermix with the Emerald City. I'm just saying that because that was something. I did just before um, uh, the wife. We brought crowd costumes from Spain, from Italy, from London, and then we sort of we were looking for specific, you know, for Emerald City. We looked for a sort of a, a range of ethnic things in a rough period, and then we sort of jumbled them all up together and added sort of layers on top. So it wasn't it wasn't just a straight sort of peasant costume. So yes, crowd is always crowd is always difficult. Uh, Thing you always have to remember in television, you very rarely see anybody's feet, so that's <laughs> you can make a good saving there. <laughs> um, see, in terms of how how much do you require from a production, in terms of like how much, like you, you said you read the script beforehand, like how much do you actually feel like so you require? And for example, with Da Vinci's Demons, with that, they're already you can kind of already kind of understanding, but what if it's someone who approaches you saying, This is a completely new universe, I want original costumes and ideas, how do you approach something like that? Well, you would talk to the director, because obviously the director would have a vision, one would hope, of how, you know, he envisages, and often the production designer is on board before the costume designer is on, so there must, you know, usually, it would be a very unusual job for somebody to say, I want three or four universes, can you just let me have a few ideas by the end of the week? You would want a little bit more of an idea of what those people were going to be doing, you know, are they warriors? Are they, you know, what are they? Are they creatures? Are they on a, a sort of more simplified 
way, you know, scripts often give you different amounts of information. So some scripts will give you a very brief description of a character and other scripts will give you quite a detailed description. Now that can sometimes work, it can sometimes not work because again, it would then depend on casting. You know, they might talk, you know, about a particular look or somebody wearing a particular item and that doesn't then work on the person who's cast. So there are changes that need to sometimes be made. 